0: Hi, I'm Michelle Sawatsky-Coop, and today we hit a milestone episode for Heroes in Our Midst, our 60th one, plus our final guest of what we've dubbed Season 2. Now, this series, we've focused on incredible people who are unapologetically human. Peter is one of those people and has worked with some of the highest achievers in the world who are the same. Dr. Peter Jensen is one of the most successful sports psychology professionals in the world, He has worked with countless sports teams, including being a sports psychology lead with the Canadian Olympic Committee and currently Team Canada Basketball. He is very good at what he does. Very good. He gets it and communicates quickly. And many teams, organizations and companies from around the world seek out his help. He founded the company, The Third Factor, which you'll hear a lot more about later on in our conversation. Uh, Finding the human behind great performance is literally his thing. Working with teams to bring them together and bring them to excellence is his passion. Leaders of all kinds seek him out for help in finding the best ways to communicate with their teams and bring them to greatness. He is sought after for his experience and knowledge in all of that. And of course, he didn't just land where he is. He had a winding path to get there, starting as a physical education teacher and then a coach. And where exactly has he ended up? I asked him.
1: Yeah, well, now uh, I spent most of the morning writing. Uh, I'm writing a book on teams. Teaming, basically, the idea behind it is that I'm going to present the skills that individuals can use to work well with other people. It's not something we train people in a lot, and yet people spend a lot of time in groups. The first one, you know, they didn't even sign up for. We call that family. <laughs> and, and so the skill sets that they could use in those environments. So it's not team building. It's not culture, anything like that. It's, uh, you know, do you know how to give someone feedback? Uh, do you know how to manage yourself in a meeting? Do you, how do you intervene with the I and the we of team? And so I have a little model that I always use when I talk to any team, including sports teams, and it's a tricycle. And uh, in the front wheel of a tricycle, I'll ask players, for example, what happens on the front wheel of a tricycle? And they say, well, you pedal and you steer. I go, yeah, that's right, direction, power, front wheel of a tricycle. And so what's that on a team? That's clarity of task. Like if you know why you've been brought together and you know what you're supposed to do, then you got direction and power. But if you got a bunch of people sitting around saying, are we making a recommendation or are we deciding, or are we, then, then, then you're all over the place. And so then I'll ask, well, why did they put two back wheels on a tricycle? And eventually somebody says, balance or stability. And I go, yes, balance stability. and you know the biggest piece of bunk ever perpetrated upon teams is this idiotic phrase, there is no I in team, because anybody who's ever been on a team knows it's wrought with I and we me and them what i give what i get and so not surprisingly one of the back wheels is i individual personal needs and the other is group needs and so we talk to those things and i won't go into any more detail that's that's enough and so it's about the back two wheels of the tricycle and making sure you know because clarity is king or queen like you you don't have clarity you're not going anywhere and there's no commitment without clarity yeah and people say are you sure that's it well let me let me ask you this if I ask you to go for a run at four o'clock this afternoon, what are the two things you want to know before you run with me? And eventually somebody will say, well, how far, how fast? I go, yeah, like, how can you commit? to What you don't understand, you know, and lots of times where people aren't jumping on board because they don't, they can't imagine, well, what would it be like to be an assistant captain or what would it be like to take over that? You know? So I spent a fair amount of time on that. I'm working with athletically uh, right now. I have like, four hats in the ring I still work with the COC and I'm on two things there the NPC stuff but I'm also with Penny Werner and Karen McNeil we're with the COVID response and so what happens if Tokyo gets canceled like what are we going to do What what's the plan how are we going to you know all of that stuff right and then uh, men's basketball so we just literally finished playing in Puerto Rico in a window to qualify for 22 worlds which would lead to qualifying for the Paris Olympics and I had to do all that from a distance because they're not sending a 74 year old in the midst of this down to Puerto Rico and so uh, that was interesting but anyway we were successful won a couple of games and I work with the men's team so last fall I was in Australia and China uh, for the world championships with Nick nurse who's our head coach and I spent six weeks with him which was pretty awesome so uh, I got a lot going on and then there's just all kinds of other stuff related to the company and all that sort of stuff I don't run the company anymore but you know stuff comes up all the time and I still teach at Cornell and Queens in the in the EMBA programs there so
0: yeah so you've got your hands in a whole lot I got, of stuff
1: I got lots. I'm sort of I I always say, people say, are you tired yet? I said, no, I'm slow tiring. I'm just bringing it on grass. you
0: But Peter, you're obviously passionate about it. If it's a passion of yours, it's not hard to do, right? It's not hard to say yes to certain things. And it's amazing. The first thing I I didn't know that I would hear that you're writing another book, you're getting into another book. I mean, you have three books already to your name. You have, uh, you know, 10 Olympic games behind you and all of that. And, you know, what I want to touch on before we get to you know your story and how you even got to this point, I really want to ask you about sort of you are known for your work, not only in sport, but with companies. Right, I mean that's a big thing that you do. I mean, what are you being challenged with? I mean, you you did touch a little bit on the whole Tokyo thing, and I think that's front of mind. So we might as well put it in front of our conversation. Uh, what are you being challenged with these days, um, with athletes and with corporations? I mean, the people you work with now, for some there's no sports, and and the business world has completely changed for so many companies and businesses. Um, you know, how are you tackling uh basically all of your clients that you're chatting with? I mean, this must come up all the time.
1: First of all, one of the things that we did as an organization is the minute literally on March 13th when COVID hit a year ago or whatever it was, it was pretty close to that date when we first realized, oh my gosh, we got cases in Canada. Um, we literally, we, we lost all our business, like it all just disappeared and literally overnight. And and so uh, we hunkered down for three months and we put one team and all they did was talk about how are we going to online train really good resiliency skills. And that's the program we delivered in person for 30 years almost now, right? And then the coaching program. And so most of online learning is crap, like it's really bad. It's not just bad, it's really bad. And so um, perhaps there was a low bar or whatever, but we created these programs and, and, and it ties in with their sports thing because in these programs, we have a ton of video. Uh, like Dane, the CEO, has collected video, anybody who comes in to do anything with us from Christine Sinclair to Haley Wickenheiser to Johan Kost to Michael Bonaccini, the chef. And so we have lots of really neat little stories and clips and things like that. And as you know, that's what brings things to life. The design is really important and we have really good designers. And so we managed to keep everybody employed. And we had a very large contract in the U.S. that went south with a very large bank because we're partnered with the University of North Carolina as well as with Queens and Cornell. And so um, they decided they would take it online. Well, that was like a godsend. So we started doing all of these programs online and we created you know, mockups of them and we tested them and all that sort of stuff. And now, I mean, people who were not that technically savvy, we now got three screens up in front of us and we got changers and we can go from Mentimeter to this, to that, to the other thing, you know? And so uh, our our training is back to where it was like, it's like, we're very busy and some very, very large contracts, which is great. And the only difference is nobody has to go anywhere. Like we don't have to get over the border. uh, We don't have to hotel expenses. We don't have traveling expenses and neither does the client and we can extend things. So with all of our programs, we, we talk about learn, practice and apply and so in the learn portion uh we do that online like we do that with video so we have tons of video because we before the covid we taped the whole coaching program with myself and sandra stark who designed it doing pieces of it and so we had like hours so those videos you don't come to class to hear someone talk about clarity or competence or recognition or asking good questions or listening or giving competent, relevant feedback or whatever, you're gonna go on the video and use that then, then now, then the two hours we have together in, in the online classroom, we're practicing those skills. And so then you leave with a challenge that says, okay, you know, it's fine, it's all theory right now, but really, how are you gonna recognize your people more often on a daily basis? Especially now that you're coaching at a distance, you're managing at a distance, something you never did before. And so they take away a challenge and they come back and they report on the challenge. And in the meantime, they watch more video. And, and so um, it's really working well. And the companies like it a lot because it's really talking about longevity and keeping things in. So the, the whole program runs over like a six-week period. So it gives you a lot more time to have practices, you know, where they go out and they or apply, where they go out and use the stuff. And then you get to you hear a million stories. Oh my God, we didn't even think of that. That's a great idea. And once you get to thousands of people over the course of a few months, and you find what works, what doesn't work, we want more time together in our breakouts, fine. And you can really, after you prototype them, you know, you can really fine tune them so that, they gotta be able to learn, and and not only that, they gotta be able to apply it. And that's the big thing with us. They can't use this stuff. To know and not do is not to know, Mm said, let's say, 4,000 years ago, you know?
0: Yeah, so what a parallel between sport and, and, and these corporations you're talking about. We're all, like you said, we're all on teams. You started our conversation with that. And yeah, yeah. and just so true, whether it's even just right, like you said, our very first team. I look around my house here going, yeah, my team, some of them are upstairs. And so, Peter, I, I want to know about where, you know, where did teams start for you? I grew up in a mining town in northern Quebec, in a
1: little mining town called Miranda. So if you're thinking about Miranda, think Flin Flon, or think, uh, you know, any northern community, Coal Lake, Alberta, you know, that sort of thing. One of four kids, and my dad worked 42 years underground in the mine, and he was a miner, it emigrated from Denmark. And it being a small community, but a very prosperous one, because the mine also had a smelter, which makes all the difference in the world. Sudbury and Flin Flon and Miranda have smelters. And so even when the minerals peel it, peter out, they're shipping stuff to be processed there right and so uh the mine had built an entire block recreation center a huge recreation center took up the whole block had a gymnasium had a curling club had a hockey rink, had a rifle range had a weight room i'm talking back in the uh late 50s you know early 60s for crying out loud and so we had really good facilities and i went to a high school that had 300 and some students. So we did all our phys ed class over at that arena. So uh, I was on every possible team you could imagine and played all kinds of sports. I loved baseball, still do. Played baseball in the summer, played on the school football team, played on the basketball team, played on the volleyball, (laughs) you know, and that sort of thing. And then my phys ed teacher at that point, a guy named Barry Wilson, who currently lives in Red Deer now, he had graduated from the University of New Brunswick. And so I ended up going to UMB, which was an incredibly good phys ed school at that time. Okay. And what made it a good phys ed school was that they taught you how to teach the stuff. In other words, there was not, it wasn't about exercise. Phys, I mean, we had those programs, but it was all about, I want to watch you teach the layup to this individual. I want you to f- teach the front handspring. I want you to teach the front crawl. And so I learned particularly from a man named John Mahar, who was the Dean at that time, an amazing man, an amazing teacher, just a simply outstanding teacher. I learned so many tricks of the trade, like little wee things that you do when you're teaching. And it's interesting because now often an organization like a large bank just approaches and we're, we're teaching them to teach our coaching program. So they're, and you know, you'll be watching them and especially when it was live and you go, they don't get this. Like, You know, they'll do a simple little thing. I'll just give you one example. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're in a classroom, they got tables out there and they're getting report backs. So they stay at the front of the room. Well, who do the report back people talk to? They talk to the presenter. Well, he's five feet away. So people in the back can't hear what the hell's going on. What I learned from John Mahar was move around the room. And when people are reporting back, make sure you are at the furthest point back in the room. So you don't ever say anything to them, they just naturally project, you know? How do you do demonstrations? What's the angle? What are you trying to get them to notice? And so I learned a ton about teaching and that has served me my entire life uh, as a trainer and as a, as a uh, adjunct professor and all that sort of stuff. And so I, I've always been a strong teacher, you know? And like, I remember I I, was, I went from UNB to the Ottawa Valley. I taught in a high school in Shawville, Quebec with a guy named Brian Murray, who eventually uh, coached in the NHL and became general manager of the Ottawa Senators. He and I were the two phys ed teachers there. Then I went to the University of Alberta, did a master's. Then I ended up at UVic, where I worked with the basketball team and uh, and the phys ed faculty. And, uh, so they, they got me to supervise uh, elementary school phys ed teachers, you know? And it was great because it was so easy. To, like I'd go out and I'd, uh, I'd just watch the teacher. I always had a stopwatch. And so I'd pick one ki- kid in the class and I'd time that kid How every time they t- they were physically active then turn the watch out physically. And you'd find in a 45 minute to an hour phys ed class, you're lucky that kid was active for seven minutes. You know, and then you'd look at them and say, well, how come you ran that drill with two lanes? Well, it's easier. No, no. But you want the kids to practice dribbling the ball. How many balls you got? Six. Then six lines. But just simple little stuff, you know. But the stuff over the years that you know, you know, it's like having a tyranny of knowledge, right? You don't know what you know. But in watching those teachers, all of a sudden, they go, why aren't they doing this? Why aren't they doing that? It wasn't like I had a list that I was checking them against. It was, what would John Mahar have done here? Or Les Peak, who was an amazing elementary school phys ed teacher. And then, you know, then I got hired at the University, uh, York University in Toronto. I worked as athletic director there for 15 years to 1987, 88. And then I quit and went out on my own, formed a company called the Canadian Center for High Performance, sold that to my old partner, then uh, performance coaching. And then we became third factor about five years ago. So that's, that's sort of, and, and we do corporate training because I've never been. Um, I mean, like uh, when I work with athletes, I don't charge athletes. I mean, there's no money in amateur sport. I, I'm not going to make my money in amateur sport. I make my money in the corporate sector. Right. But what I get out of sport is sport's a great lab. You want to talk about resiliency? You want to talk about people who are dealing with disappointment and failure? Oh, my sports. goodness. Sports. Sports. I mean, what are you doing in sport if you can't handle disappointment, setback, and failure? I mean, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you have more of those in one year than most people have in twenty years of their life, so you get better at it.
0: Yeah, and you practice it in an environment that's not necessarily life and death, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I, it's amazing. When did you make that connection? When did you sort of say, you know, I love sport. I'm a, you know, you did the whole phys ed thing. You got the education. Where did you make that sort of decision to go? I got to get over into this corporate world and take what I know was, over there. It
1: was made for me, as many things in life are. Yeah. I, uh, I went through a, a divorce, and when I looked at how much my ex-wife, who was a friend of mine, uh, needed at that point, I realized that she needed everything I was making at that point, pretty much. <laughs> so I needed other work. So I, I started a tennis school in Toronto, and um, aside from my regular job, and uh, one day I had in an executive with Paulson Bridge. He was uh, actually the CEO. And he it was this gruff guy. His father was like 90, and his father was still coming to work. He was a geologist. And, 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 and this guy was chairman of uh, Falkenburg. And he had this gravelly voice, and he looked at me, and he said, I want you to come in and talk to my vice presidents about some of this stuff. They could use some of that energy management stuff that you're talking about here in Tennessee." So, so I started doing things, and it's the old story, you know? You don't know what you know. You think everybody sets goals. You think everybody... Uh, lays out a game plan you think everybody knows the difference between a performance goal and an end goal they don't yeah and so um i remember mel davidson was she got on her own now but uh, who was a women's hockey coach and things and and i said to her one day mel you have no idea what you know (laughs) i just think everybody just does this stuff they don't and so once i got out there oh my goodness and then you know the calgary olympics happened and and i was working with really high-profile athletes at that point. I had all the figure skaters to start with. And, you know, that's where the medals came from. You know, Brian Orser, Elizabeth Manley, and McCollin Wilson, who incidentally, yesterday was the anniversary of their skate for the first medal ever for Canada in ice dance. And Ooh. what a history we've had since then, hey, with Shaylin and Victor. And, of course, oh. uh, you know, well, well, I'm not right to all the others. But, but anyway, as soon as the Olympics were over, I got invited to speak at a large conference, 5,000-some-odd people. And I did a piece of what I called mental fitness at the time. We would now call resiliency, And uh, it was all word of mouth forever and ever. And then, you know, we hired other people and we brought in a head of training. And we grew because we had to grow if we were going to get better. And yeah. I needed the corporate voice in there. So I hired Peggy from IBM and Steve from IBM and brought in more of that sort of stuff. Yeah. And uh, it's been a great ride. It's been fantastic. And it continues to, to be so.
0: Uh, take us to some of those, uh, you were already talking about um, the figure skaters and and what a sport more than most um, where you're all, you're alone on the ice. Uh, working with Brian Orser and those, I mean, those became big names for us here in Canada. They are big names, big performances, huge pressure and some big falls and not always winning. Talk, can you talk a little bit or, you know, you have a couple of great stories. I know you have, a, you worked with Brian Orser and he gave you some great praise back in the day, like how big a part of his team you were and um, I would love for you to just bring us to that because we haven't lived that you have we've watched it from our living rooms but
1: the thing about skating as you pointed out is you are all alone and you're in the middle of the ice and you're surrounded by the audience but it's even more than that like I could fill the audience with people from sommelier uh, uh, Somalia rather I just went, moved from a wine store to a country um, <laughs> and even though they've never watched figure skating in their life they would know I don't think she's supposed to be lying on the ice right now. Right. Like it, it, they wouldn't know all the details and things, but people know when you make a mistake and, and when they react, like when you fall, it's more than the visceral, like, oh, cause the whole crowd does that, you know? And, and so it is a closed scale sport in the sense that you know what you're trying to do, but you have to Im- innovate some of the time. So I oddly enough started working with figure skating because Cal Botterell uh, was working with them. And then he got a hold of me and invited me down to London, Ontario to one of their camps because he was moving to work with basketball and things like that. So he ended up transferring me to figure skating. And I ended up with the figure skaters for three Olympics. And I worked my way through the Orcers and the Kurt Brownings and the Elvis Stoikos and the Marie Chouinard and, you know. All, all the way up to uh, Joanna Rochette, actually. Yeah. So, um, so I worked with a lot of them over the years, and um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough, it's a tough existence. It really is. Yeah. And I mean, it's just pure application. So I'll just give you, I'll g- give you one example. Mm-hmm. So I, I started working with Elizabeth Manley uh, before the World Championships, and I want to say in 1985 in Geneva, and she's. A, surprise the world by coming in fifth. And, uh, and then I was also working with the pairs, and I was also working with Robin Tracy. And so Brian Orser said to the head of the, so figure said, I, I, I better start working with him because Brian, unfortunately, had missed both his triple axles, even though it was legendary, uh, his triple axles at that competition. And so I worked with him for the world championships in 87. Yeah. Okay. I'm probably a year out with the genie, but it doesn't matter. 87, the world championships, which were in Cincinnati. And he had yet to win the world championship. He was easily the best skater, but he, you know, he, he won the short and won the long in Sarajevo and finished second to Scott Hamilton because he got mucked on the figures, right? Cause he could do those things. And so, um, so Brian came to me. And so uh, I, I, we talked, I said, okay, we got to talk about what happened in Geneva. So wh- where were you before you skated? I was in the dressing room. What did you do? Oh, I didn't want to hear Fedev's marks. Fedev was a Russian skater that was going to be his biggest competition. Uh, it turned out that uh, that's not, the, the other Brian won that one. But anyway, <laughs> um, what, what happened was he, he went in the dressing room and he turned all the showers on so he couldn't hear the marks and everything. And then he came out, so he had no idea that Fedeva had fallen twice, Great. no idea whatsoever. And Boitano had skated okay, and he was ahead of Fedeva, but really, Orser just had to do one axle; He would won the world championship easily. And so we started saying, well, we get, this is crazy because what you're making up in your head about how they skated is way worse than what's really happening. So we're gonna deal with reality from now. And one of the things he hated, he hated skating first. Oh, he hated skating first. So, cause it's, it's different, right? Like normally you come off the ice, you catch your breath, you walk through the start of your program, you go out, you warm up, you skate. But when you skate first, you stay on the ice, you know? So I said, well, there's no rule that says you gotta stay on the ice. So what we started to do was anytime he drew to skate first in any competition, he would cut his warm up short and come off the ice. And we just go back and we do all the things we would normally have done. We had a set sequence and then go back on the ice. Well, didn't he draw to skate first in Cincinnati? And so he came off the ice, did his thing, went back on, and he wins the world championship, right? So now you fast forward to the Olympics in Calgary and in a short program, Brian draws to skate first. And I'll bet you, you could interview everybody who has been at the rink Every Canadian who watched it on TV, no one will know that he was not on the ice for the whole warmup. He came off where they keep the camera at the corner where the boards are low, and Paul Martini happened to be on that camera, uh, the ex-Gator, and so we warned him ahead of time. One minute to go, we're coming off here, and then while well, everybody's putting their guards on and everything, uh, we'll, we'll head over and do our usual thing. You know? And he won the short, he won the short. So it was standardizing certain things, just trying to make them consistent, right?
0: Yeah.
1: And that's the problem with Tokyo for our athletes right now, because even if you've been to Olympics, it's going to look so different. And you know, as as I said to someone the other day, you know, you know that intellectually, but you don't really know it. Right. Like like I remember when I in December, just past December, I was scheduled to teach at Cornell. But I was going to do it online, obviously, from where I sit right now. But like in my head, I was driving to Cornell. I was, I knew with the hotel right on campus. I'm going down here. I'm going to pre- And then I suddenly realized one day, you're not going anywhere. Like you're doing right here. Well, that's the same with the athletes. Like they don't have any data. Like we've learned so little from the IOC so far about what's really going on. We know certain things. We know the rowers aren't going to have ice baths, for example. We, we know that. Well, they always have ice baths. So, like right now, they got to be preparing because they use they those to cool their core body temperature down, et cetera, quickly, et cetera. So, we got to start thinking about those things. Uh, we know that athletes are not allowed in the village until five days before their event, and they must leave the following within two days. Although, with the COC, it's going to be the next day you're going to leave. So, there's no hanging around. There's no, you know, unless everybody's immunized by then, which is highly unlikely. Um, it's not going to be normal. And so it's hard to come up with game plans uh, just knowing that it's uncertain.
0: Yeah.
1: And you know, many, many years ago, a British guy who was a real character, if you've never heard Alan Watts speak, uh, go online and search him out because he's, it's, he's just unbelievable. And he was in the 60s. Eh? He did a lot of talk in the 60s blending Eastern and Western thought. and all that. But he wrote a book called The Wisdom of Insecurity. And his basic point is, everything's uncertain all the time. Like, why why do we, as human beings, need certainty? Like, why are we wired for certainty when the world is not? I mean, every Buddhist will tell you things arise and things pass away. Every single day we get up, something changes from what we expect. And so why do we always have to have so much certainty? And so it's more about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, getting comfortable with being uncertain, getting comfortable with not knowing all the answers because that's really which because that's where you're going to go and and you know it's not a level playing field right now in other countries athletes are training to a much higher degree than our ours are particularly in groups we're not doing any of that stuff at all hardly right um, and then there will be other countries that prioritize their athletes for vaccines we won't and then it's not even just tokyo because there's a lot of noise out there about boycotting China you know so uncertainty is going to be with us for a period of time here and the good news is that every single day you get the opportunity to become more resilient. you know like, like I often tell people you know my, my father never had to work on physical fitness and the reason is because he worked in a mine underground like he didn't need any exercise he needed rest, didn't need exercise. <laughs> But he did not have to search anywhere for physical fitness. It came in his day. Mm-hmm. Well, what comes in our day right now? The opportunity to be resilient. It comes every single day. Like you're you're right in the middle of a lab. Yeah. And, and so as hard as it is, you know, somebody said to me, and we we're talking about reframing, for example. How many times do you have to reframe a situation? I said, how many times do you need to do it? Like sometimes you have to do it every five minutes because yeah, but comes up in your head, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you've got tons of opportunities to train that side of, of your performance. Tons of opportunities. Yeah. Because, you know, uh, a crisis like this is a terrible thing to waste. Like, you know, you've you got opportunities. And I didn't say that. Uh, uh, one of the financial people with Obama said that in 2008 when the market declined, you know, that right. a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And it is. No, it takes a lot of discipline to stick with it and things, and and, and our athletes are very resilient. They really are, but um, it's going to be
0: tested. It's going to be t- tested severely. Absolutely amazing the perspective you bring to that. Right, as soon as there's a, a situation has, have you always been like that, have, or have you learned to be like that from the people that you've associated with?
1: I had a mother whose nickname, when she grew up with seven, there were seven sisters and two boys in the family. Her nickname was Happy. Okay. And my mother's a really bright woman. Unfortunately, lived in an era when her, her father did not want her even to finish the high school, but she finally got the right to finish high school. She would have been a great teacher or whatever. But my mother, when, when you got overly focused on something, my, my, my mother would say to you, well, worry if it'll make a difference. And you know, I used to take that to mean don't worry, but now I realize, of course, it means worry if it will make a difference. Like sometimes you want to get afraid early, you know, as, as Brent Sutter, the hockey coach once said. And what he means is get afraid early so that you prepare so you're ready to go there. But most of what we worry about, man, you know, just because you think it doesn't make it true. People think, well, no, but I'm thinking, so what? That's fabric. what's factual about what you're thinking? There's nothing factual, like the voice in your head is not God. Nothing factual about it. Mm -hmm. It's what the mind does. The mind makes up stories. You know, you asked me where I learned. I can tell you, I I learned a lot in my graduate work. I learned a hell of a lot as a teacher. I learned a ton everywhere. But you know what took it to the final stages? What's that? 10-day total silence meditation program and meditating. Because it's not theory anymore. It's not theory anymore that the mind either grasps at things or just wants to get rid of them. Like once you're in there and all the textbooks are put away and you're not reading anything, listen, you begin to realize very quickly you are not your mind. Thank God you're not your mind. Because (laughs) it runs all over the place and it makes up stories. And one minute you're thinking about your Aunt Alma and the next thing you're thinking about chocolate chip cookies and you're thinking about this. and, And you begin to realize, oh, my gosh. But what you also realize, which is the really critical thing is, you can observe it. So it's not who you are. If that wasn't true, then we'd just be like a snake or a lion or anything else. We'd be reactive. Right. Tara Brock, who's a marvelous meditation teacher uh, out of Washington DC, I love Tara stuff. She said the other day, revenge is the laziest form of grief. Hmm. And when you think about that, oh my God, it just so hits the nail on the head. Like I might as well just be a, an alligator, you know? and certainly nothing human about. To be human, as Pranko pointed out, is to put the pause in between, you know, what you get triggered by and how you respond. Right. And to respond is very different than to react. And that's the key learning. Like that's that's where everything starts. I call it active awareness, but it's really about now, what do you do? And sometimes you change your perspective. And sometimes you breathe differently because you got to manage your energy. And sometimes you change the movies you're running in your head because you're on the wrong channel. And sometimes you redirect your attention to why am I doing this? And why am I here? And what's the purpose of this? You get back in touch with a sense of purpose and meaning and your your vision and your purpose. And I don't think it's overly complicated. You know, in the middle of Everything is this center of awareness and then you choose. And that's free will. Free will isn't driving yourself when you don't feel like doing it or willpower or anything like that. It's choice. And as long as you have awareness, you have choice. And that's what makes people human. And you only have to look at people who have evolved to very high levels of humanity. When you look at the Mother Teresas or Christ or Gandhi or Martin Luther King, or any any of them, you know, Madame Curie, etc. And And what do you discover? If you got them all in a room together and you said to them, let's talk about human values. Do you know what? they are going to have the same hierarchy of values. People can argue whose values, whose values. If I believe in this. I believe in that. Not these people. Love is before hate. You know, there's a sequence and they are there uh i take care of you before i take care of myself etc and it's in the parables and it's in the stories and it's 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 everywhere in the fullness of those belief systems you know not in the warped, twisted one-way view that a lot of people take in but that that awareness piece and the choice piece is really critical
0: Yeah, incredible. You talk about um, that resilience, you talk about, you've, you've mentioned energy management, you've mentioned things that when we make a choice and that that is what we are as humans, we're making choices all of the time. And that must be so fascinating for you when you work with a team of any kind, whether it's sports or corporate, you work with this team and there's so many different humans that you're trying to put together. And, you know, talk a little bit about team. Do you have a highlight team? I
1: could talk about the women's hockey team. I was with them for three gold medals, you know, but, and and they were great. And I loved every minute with them and all that sort of stuff. But you know what? I, I would talk to you about men's basketball and I'll tell you why. Here's a sport where in order to qualify to go to the Olympics, you must first qualify to go to world championships. And here's the problem. None of your best players are available to help you qualify. And so you need all kinds of players that will help you qualify. And then at the end of that, you're going, thanks. We're bringing in all our NBA players now to go to the Olympics to represent Canada. And so that's been a long time built. We had over 50 different players, men, in our last four year quadrennial in order to qualify uh, to take the players to China, to the world championship. And of those players, maybe, maybe seven or eight came to China. And that's because our NBA players, it got awkward. We, we had injuries. Kyle, uh, Kelly Alinek got injured. Jamal Murray had a bad ankle. Um, Barrett had a problem, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, et cetera. But they all feel like they're part of the group. The group we just had in Puerto Rico. Imagine, we had to somehow find 16 people to go down because we were supposed to play four games in five days. So we needed a big team. We got 16. They go down, there's no NBA guys, there's none of that. Uh, They go down there, Cuba doesn't show up, so now you only got two games. So you can't play everybody. And so I did a huge, well, not huge, but I did a little piece with them on on roles, like what it's like to, you know, and, and that every role is important. And it is, it is. Like if you're on the practice squad, really important because you've got to push us to the point and we we're playing virgin islands they got one player hodge some only I but had 44 points against us in the last game and so we won the first game by two points last minute basket and we won the second game by five but like we needed everybody at the top of their game and then we barely we get down there everybody has to be in their own hotel room uh for the first two three days until they've been tested twice and proven not to have covid so the coach doesn't can't run practices. They've never played. They're, they're not together. Then we then we have to get them together. We have to accelerate their development as a team. So you do things online. You do that. So then, in our first game in the second quarter, one of our players get, has to get pulled out because his test came back inconclusive, and so the medical staff so we pull him out. Now the players all have to go back into quarantine for another day, in between games when we should be practicing so that uh, until uh, this player passes the test twice, which he does. And so what we talked about was the requirement to be the highest version of yourself. You need to be the highest version of yourself. And, and I talked about to, to them about what they've already done. Like, look what you've done already. Just showing up. Our coach who coaches in Russia, he's Canadian, but it took him 47 hours to get to Puerto Rico. Okay, four flights. And then he has to go back, you know. <laughs> and so, the dedication, the commitment is unbelievable. In mean, basketball, in this country, is going to go through the roof. You know, you look at just just yesterday alone, Basketball Canada kind of signed a massive agreement with Sportsnet, massive agreement, and the partnerships are growing. They just hired a new CEO from Maple Leaf Sport and Entertainment. Like, basketball is going to be. The, the summer version of hockey, you know, like everybody's going to want to argue over who should have been picked for the team because we have more NBA players than anybody, but the Americans. Right. And so we can put together a bloody team, you know, and of course we have, in my opinion, the best coach in basketball. So in working with the, this team, you know, it's all, it's, it's not about the basketball. <laughs> you know, it's about minimizing all the other things that we have to deal with and just, creating a, a sense of this is the way we need to be as human beings, you know. This is what's needed right now. You know, you came down here, all you've thought about is getting out there, playing on the court, playing on the court, et cetera, and you know what? There's four of you that aren't even going to see the floor. You know, you're just not going to, you're in a game. You're just not going to go out there. But we had, you know, one of the players, Keza, who went through all of that, not in COVID, but he went through not playing and thing. Now he's starting point guard. And so we got all these stories, you know, that of, of people who just minded their knitting, behaved as human beings and get invited back and get invited back, and gradually they move up to where they have a chance. And of course it may not help them play in the Olympic games but it might help them be a pro playing in Europe mm-hmm. or in Asia or somewhere else, which is true because these players came from all, I think half the damn team came from France because all kinds of them uh, play professionally in France. And so they're, they're earning their living uh, playing basketball. But we had a few from universities uh, uh, first time. And so they were really young. But uh, just good exposure. But the whole idea is to build team, build team, build team. Yeah. And the coach, this particular coach, his name is Cody Hebert. I, did, I was down in the Bahamas with him. And, and I was doing the bicycle thing. And then he oh, God, I love that. We're going to put that up in... And then he did this amazing exercise. And I said to him, where'd you learn that? I did a master's in sports psychology when I was coaching in Finland. (laughs) Okay. So this is a guy who develops himself as well, right? Yeah. So uh, anyway, I'm all over the place. But you get a picture. So I'll, I'll go through walls for this group because they do. That's what they do.
0: You know, uh, Peter, in all your work with uh, with teams, I'm sure coaches have come to you and I'm sure, you know, someone's listening today saying, well, I'm a I'm a coach. I want to, you know, and even the title of your, your book, Ignite the Third Factor. A lot of coaches want to know how, or parents even, we want to know how to ignite our kids and ignite those that are in our sphere. Business leaders want to ignite their employees. That's what, I mean, that's what you do. So maybe now that we have you, we love a little gem of that. Like, how do you, How do you uh, come to a a group of people and, or or maybe to those leaders and say, ah, this is how you're going to get your team going. This is, how do you direct, how do you direct leaders to then direct, because you can't touch every single coach Uh, every single player, you know?
1: No, no, but we can talk about, we'll we'll talk about leaders and then I I do want to talk about the individual just for a minute.
0: My, My thing is that
1: when you look at the really, really good coaches, and I'm talking about people who not only produce gold medals, but exceptional human beings. Like, that's, that's the way they are, right? Yep. I remember a coach I worked with years ago, and when you went in his office, he had above his desk on a big streamer up above, and it said, If you'll be nothing without a gold medal, then you'll be nothing with a gold medal. But it's not about the gold medal, it's about what happens to you along, along the way, right? And so, the way I talk about it in, to coaches is I talk about coaches need to develop a developmental bias. Like you have to be biased. You have to learn to look through eyeglasses where what you see is what's possible for Michelle. How can I take her from here to here? Like that, that needs to be what you're looking at. You know, one of the figure skating coaches, Doug Lee, who I worked with for years and years, we were working with a Japanese skater named Takeshi Honda years ago. And, and that Japanese Federation was all over him about certain things. And, and, and Doug was just trying to help him as a person, you know? And, and Doug turns to me and he says, you know, in the end, Peter, all you have left is the person. Yeah. And so if you're not working on the person. What the hell are you working on? And one of my mentors in basketball, as a basketball coach back in 71 to 73, many years ago at UVic, uh, where I worked with the JV team there, um, was Don Wooden. And I got to spend some time with Coach Wooden, you know. And I mean, man, you talk about a developer of people. That's what he was. He happened to use basketball to develop, in this instance, young men, right? But it wasn't about the basketball. It was about the young men. And that's the way his players talk about it. You know, they, they talk about how they grew as human beings under him, right? And so for coaches, I really emphasize developmental bias. And the other thing I emphasize, and this works at the individual level and the group level, is there's no easy way to say this. Logic changes nobody. Like, if logic changed human behavior, who would smoke? Who wouldn't exercise? Who wouldn't eat healthy? Emotion and imagination change people. And Cotter, you know, John Cotter at Harvard has this neat thing where he says, most people think it goes like this, think, analyze, change. It doesn't go like that at all. You know? It goes, imagine, feel, change. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, as soon as you realize that imagination and emotion are the developing factors, and that's, I learned that from Casimir Dombrowski, a polypsychiatrist I had the occasion to work with. That's where I learned it. And, and his point was that emotions are a tragic gift. You know, they're tragic in a sense that it feels really terrible most of the time, but it's a gift because they're going to take you further. And so, in, in working with people, you got to bear that in mind. And sometimes a push out of somewhere is something you do with emotion. You know, like, like the other day I was talking to a, a, a young performer and, and, and they're blocked. They're not moving forward. And, uh, and I said to her, so how are you going to feel three months from now if you're still where you are now and you still haven't got this, this, and this. And she went, Oh my God, it's going to be awful. And, and so I just put her in touch with that emotion. You know, what is it going to feel like to continue to tread water? Now, what if you change? What if you adapt? What if you ch- change something and you started to move forward? And oh my God, then her emotion totally changes. Huh? And then we we talked, and we don't talk. Because what do I need to do as a leader right now? I need to help her with self-awareness and self-responsibility. I need to put myself out of work here. And so when you're building self-awareness and self-responsibility, you always ask questions. And so I said to her, all right, so you're stymied right now. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty frustrating. So what is the one thing, what's the one thing If you did it different or better, might help you get out of this hole, make a big difference in your performance. What's the one thing oh, I I really got to do more on this and less on that. All right. And let's develop a plan for dealing more on that. And you know, her coach could come along at that point and went, oh, (laughs) that's nothing. What she really needs to work on (laughs) is this and this, this." no, no. No, but she's, you want commitment? This is hers, this Mm -hmm. is hers. Because yeah, all roads are going to lead to the problem. All roads are going to lead to the blockage. It doesn't matter which road we take. They're all going there. So so we started working on that one, you know? Yeah. And, then, and, and it's so funny, eh? because two days later, she's feeling different, she's this, she's that. Because it's not about big things. It's always about little things, you know? I jokingly always tell audiences, you know, think about the Titanic. It turned, Imagine it turns a quarter of a degree South when it leaves England. No movie. Like, it's in a whole <laughs> different place, right? Yeah. It's in a whole different, and the same thing is true of us. I, I know a guy who years ago, his wife said, I'm, I'm not buying white bread anymore. Like, you don't want to join the rest of us. He had three daughters and his wife, and and his name is Terry. And and she, she said, so you're either going to eat whole wheat bread or you're not eating any bread because I'm, I'm not buying a loaf of white bread for you and I got to throw a head and so he agreed, and, and, and I met him, you know, years later, we were somewhere, I knew him all along, but, but he, and he was running a marathon, all that sort of stuff, and I, I said, I can't believe you're doing this. He said, I only agreed to eat whole weight bread. That's where it started, you know? I just agreed to do that, but Thank then you. that led to this, and then that led to this. Yeah. And pretty soon he's in a whole different place than he was. He's Sometimes sure. it's something you got to get rid of. Like, you know, if you've got a pebble in your shoe, when's the best time to take it out? As soon as you notice it. <laughs>
0: I was going to say, as soon as possible.
1: Because it's going to feel like a boulder in a month. Yeah. And then you created another problem. Well, it, it, metaphorically, that fits as well. Yeah. But yeah emotional imagination. I, I've, I've learned a ton about emotional imagination and how, like, if you think of it, it doesn't matter what the emotion is. Mm-hmm. you know it, it could be shame sorrow upset it doesn't matter uh, you know every single emotion has under it energy and 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 where are you going to put the energy you know you're talking but the women's hockey team remember when we lost 9-2 to the americans in uh, burlington vermont at the world championship in the opening game of the tournament in front of a packed arena of american fans chanting usa usa and uh, and so, the coach said to me, "What do I do about this?" And I met with the coaching staff, and I said, "Nothing. We got to play Finland tomorrow afternoon. I want them all to sleep on it. Really? Yeah. We we'll are having a meeting tomorrow night. I want them all to sleep on it. Because why would we rob them of this? Like, this was their experience, right? This is their experience. So, like, let them live with their the result. Let them live with it for a little bit. You know, it's not mean spirited. It's important. You know, mm-hmm. so the next morning." I'm down in the lobby. It's a little hotel, and, um, and we're going across the street because we're playing that day. We're not going on the ice until the afternoon, but we're going across the street, and there's a guy named Adam Douglas who's our strength coach, and he's going to take them out on this field, and uh, we're going to go some dry land training. And so, and and the women are like, "Oh my God!" They look like uh, death warmed over. You know, they're just dragging their butts around. And uh, so I call them together, and now you got to realize. They know me and I know them, okay, and so they they know I'm a little idiosyncratic, so they're they're okay with that, you know. <laughs> so when I asked them, So, how are you doing? How y'all feeling? Oh, you wouldn't have believed all the texts I got last night and the tweets, and my mother called me, yeah, yes, yeah. So how you feeling? Embarrassing, no Canadian team has ever lost nine to two, and they go into upset, worry, you know, and they I say, Okay, well. What do you do with that? What do you mean? Well, what are you going to do with it? Like you can turn to someone beside you who also went through this, and and you can dialogue with her about it. And you know what it's going to do? It's going to make you feel tight. Shared experience. It's going to pull you together, but it doesn't take you anywhere. You know, it's you know you know this. It's Ben Zandler's the conversation of no possibilities, right? <laughs> and so, and as we to and, and then the guy, the equipment room guy, not the equipment room guy, the video guy was a guy named Jory, who's uh, with the Oilers now. And and so he was a single guy at that time. And and so I had had breakfast with Jory and he was just pleased as punch because there was a little wee gift shop in this uh, Best Western that we were in, (laughs) in Burlington, Vermont. And and they had some hockey paraphernalia in there and he had bought a Stephen Stamkos signed hockey jersey. eh? And he was just beside himself because okay, he has like 50. OK, I told him if he ever gets married, he's going to be doing some serious closet cleaning. But anyway, so. so I, and he was so excited because he got it for a price he couldn't believe. It. Like he bought it for a third of what it would have cost him at Edmonton. So. So uh, I, I see the girls, by the way, by the way. Jury, jury, here, by that, buy Stephen Samco signed jersey this morning. And they're going, okay, where's this going? <laughs> they're going like, they're looking at, they're not happy, okay, they're not happy. They're looking at me, I remember Wicks saying to me, yeah, so what? Well, I, I want to know why he bought the jersey. Why'd he buy the jersey? Well, ask him. I said, I already asked him, I'm asking you. Why do you think he bought the jersey? We're not going anywhere until someone answers this. So eventually, <laughs> <laughs> says, I don't know, it was a good deal. I said, Jory, was it a good deal? He said, yeah, yeah, a really good deal. I said, how do you know that? So well, I got 50 sweaters, first of all, and I know they're usually well over $100, and I got this for $79. And, and some of the girls went, oh, that's really good. Really good. I said, yeah, yeah. You see, Jory, Jory knows the price of hockey, hockey jerseys, so he doesn't overpay for them. You lost a hockey game to the Americans last night. May I remind you, 9-2. I think it was nine two. Somebody's going to pipe into the podcast and say he's got the score wrong, but anyway, it's close enough. Uh, and and so yeah, you lost the hockey game to the Americans nine two last night. Yeah, yeah. Don't overpay. Don't overpay for that. You see, if you lose the game, that's bad enough. You lose confidence. You 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 lose your belief in yourself. Worse still, you leave your belief in 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 the rest of the players. Oh my god. Oh my God, we aren't going anywhere with this. And then every single practice before every single weight training session, I talked to the coaching staff. I said, I want the players, just give them to me for a minute. One minute, that's all I want is one minute. And I pull them all together. And I talk to them about, you know, how an American girl got up this morning and she worked really hard in practice because she knows eventually she's gonna to have to go up against you in the gold medal game. And what are you gonna do in this practice? So let, let her know you're back, you're back, you know? And I did, I had always, I did all these little min, vignettes, you know? Yeah. Just to keep the emotion alive, you know? Keep mm-hmm. the emotion alive. And, you know, we go into that final game, and we uh, go into overtime, and we score the winning goal and we come home with a gold medal.
0: Amazing.
1: And uh, and it's about emotion, you know? And imagination, like, what about this? And then, then the pull, where do you want to go, you know? Because it's easier to be pulled by where you're going than pushed where you're at. It's pretty tough to get kicked and pushed and shoved by what happens every day in your life. It's much better to have something out there that you're moving towards. You know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. The whole person
1: performs. So you know?
0: that's it. So you're that's not it. working with
1: that person. Who are you working with? And when you get the blocks, we didn't even talk about blocks. The blocks often in the imagination, and it's and you need a way into them. Like you, you, you remember the old Bob Seger song? Working you know, mysteries without any clues. Um, that wasn't the name of the song, the song was Midnight Moves, but that was a line in it. And, and, and that's where you are. Like you think, oh, they're, they're blocked because I'm not playing them on the power play or this isn't happening. You have no idea. And the only way you're gonna get access to that data is ask really good questions and listen. Yeah. Because that opens a window and you begin to see how they think. Like the minute that young lady said to me, here's the one thing I would work on. I get some sense of how she thinks Which is going and her coach, if they could listen quietly and just go, okay, I just learned something about her. Uh, She that really bothers her, and that's something she wants to get over. It's a window inside, you know. Yeah. And so I would say, of leaders, you've got to learn to ask a lot of questions because you know when when you tell somebody something, perhaps they listen, but when you ask them a really good question, they think. And and coming back to developmental bias, you know, thinking is way more developmental than listening, way more. Awesome.
0: We're going to get you to think a little bit about our rapid fire questions, Peter. I'm ready. What is your favorite sound?
1: It's a sound I don't get to hear much of anymore. It's the popping of a wine cork. And I don't get to hear it because I can't drink drink wine anymore. I am healthy and fine, but I had cancer, throat cancer many years ago, 10 years ago. And um, I can't take acidic stuff anymore.
0: What does being unapologetically human mean to you and why is it important?
1: Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I was hoping I would get some question like this. I'm gonna throw a whole new phrase at you. Positive maladaption. Whoa. Yeah, that's a whoa. This is a Dabrowski term. When he talked about moral human beings who continue to be moral in situations where other people bent their behavior to agree with a misshapen view or a leader or something. In other words, it means that you don't always go along with the status quo just because it's the status quo. And so it's a maladaption, but it's positive because it's the right thing to do.
0: What is something funny that's happened
1: to you? Oh, I have a crazy story. Okay. I'm going back to my last year of high school and the, and, and the Canadian Legion used to run track and field clinics across the country with a guy named Jeffrey Dyson. And so I went to Timmins, Ontario, which is a decent drive from Miranda. And I was rooming with a guy named Len Grosvenor And I woke up in the middle of the night and Len had his uh, his lamp on and he was standing and he was uh, had his hands up against the wall. And so I turned to him and I said, Len, what are you doing? And he said, I'm holding the wall up. I said, what do you mean you're holding the wall up? He said, I'm holding the wall up, it's gonna fall. And I realized he was asleep. And so I negotiated as best I could with him, but it went nowhere. And so finally, I, I got the bright idea to take the wall from him. And so we did this transfer where he got it, and I got it, yeah, okay. and I got the wall from him. And he got back into bed. And his head no sooner hit the pillow than he woke up. And he turned around, and he said, what the hell are you doing? I said, well, I'm holding up your wall. What, what are you talking about? I can tell you he tells this story very differently than I do. <laughs>
0: fantastic what does hope mean to you peter
1: oh i was looking outside today it's seven degrees here the snow has started to melt a little bit and i love to garden and so hope means to garden every gardener has hope because you need hope to put things in the ground belief i
0: love it what is your biggest takeaway from the great pause that covid has created
1: I guess I would say that COVID is like a yellow highlighter. It's showing us where we failed as a society and what we have to do as a result.
0: Who is the bravest leader you know? Why is that? And what elements of humanness do they display and allow others to display? Well, the elements of
1: humanness would come from the hierarchy values we spoke of earlier, but I would put, Mandela, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Andrea Merkel, Arden, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, I put her in there as well. And, and I think that they put people first and love before hatred and all of that stuff. And they're, um, they're open. Look what Merkel did in Germany. Look at how she opened and took all those refugees in and thinks, I mean, we could talk forever about Mandela and Gandhi and yeah.
0: What is an example? of the best in humanity that you have seen during this time?
1: Well, I may butcher his name. I'm trying to remember his exact name. But anyway, I'm going to choose the Canadian football player out of Quebec, Laurent duvenet tabdif That's his name. Who could have played in the Super Bowl had he continued to play football uh, with the Kansas City Chiefs. But he is also in medicine. And so he never went back to football camp in the fall. He took a leave from the team so he could stay and work in a long-term care facility where he was needed. And was just named co-winner of uh, the Athlete of the Year, not just, but uh, at at the year's end. And Sports Illustrated co-leader too.
0: Who are two or three people who have influenced you and how did they impact your life?
1: Well, I mentioned John Mahar, so I won't go there. He taught me how to teach. I mean, the biggest influence on my life other than my parents' Uh, was Dabrowski, Kazmiercz Dabrowski, the Polish psychiatrist uh, that I worked with um, in the 70s, when he was late in his 70s. I just learned so much from him, but mainly he had such humanity about him. You know, he, he just was never critical at, of others. You could critique his theory. And, and for, for a lot of reasons, he came at a really important point in my life to me when I was going through a difficult time. And so his, his theory, which was called the theory of positive disintegration, that you go through these difficult periods um, where you disintegrate, but uh, you can then reintegrate at a higher level of awareness. That, it just made sense to me. You know, sometimes somebody hits you right where you're at and with tremendous depth. And so, for example, the term third factor, is his, that's his term. Because at that point, what was I taking? You know, when I took psychology at that point point in graduate school doing my PhD at the University of Alberta, this is 77, 78, um, they were mostly behaviorists. And so I'm busy taking a course in like behavior modification, which I hated because it felt so manipulative. And, you know, one day in his little basement office, and this is a man for crying out loud, who was a contemporary of Freud and Jung, who... uh, had written, gosh knows how many books on moral and emotional growth. It wasn't just a medical doctor and a psychiatrist. He had two PhDs. I mean, uh, unbelievably intelligent human being. And and we were talking about how the behaviorists had taken over there. And and he turned to me in this quiet voice and he said, uh, and I'm looking at a picture of my office right now as I talk to you. And if you want to picture it, just picture a little goatee. and a very Freudian-looking man, because that's, that's what he looked like, you know. And, uh, and he turned to me and he said, uh, uh, and he didn't insult him, he just said, you know, they're, they're missing the point. And I said, what do you mean, Dr. Dabrowski? Well, he said, of course. We've argued for years about nature and nurture, he said, and they're both important. No one who has more than one child will argue. That nature isn't important, you know. They don't have equally skills in math. They're not equally optimistic. They're not equally risk-taking. And he said, "Who's going to deny upbringing? Of course, it's important." But he said, "There's also a third factor," and he never ever put another name on it. He just called it the third factor. And uh, and his definition is that uh, it's the autonomous power of the individual to develop beyond the limits set by their genetic what they're given at birth or environmental abilities, how they're raised. And so when you look at the life of Helen Keller or Martin Luther King or Mandela or like anybody, what you discover is, you know, they rose well above um, what they were given and how they were raised. I mean, Mandela is a great example. I mean, he goes into a prison on Robben Island for 18 years he certainly doesn't get different genetics, and he doesn't get any better parenting. Uh, what happens is he pulls himself up by his own bootstraps. Who developed Mandela? Mandela developed Mandela. Hmm. And and through the emotion and imagination route that we talk of. And so Dabrowski talked about the overexcitabilities that individuals have, emotionally and imaginational, and how important they were in playing a role in your own growth and development. And uh, and so that that really struck home with me and uh, obviously it stayed with me for many, many years.
0: Certainly an impact on you that you share with so many and you continue to do so. Peter, will you just continue to do this like, you know, till uh, until the very you
1: end? It. You can say it until I drop dead. Sure. Okay. Okay. That's a natural course of things. <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. I'm going to do things as long as I'm doing them to a level of quality where nobody's saying, boy, he used to be something. The minute I hear that phrase, I'm gone. <laughs> I'm going out to pasture at that point. I do have nine grandchildren, so I'm fairly busy, busy in that realm as well. So
0: That's fantastic. Peter, before I let you go, I know that uh, you now work with your son, am I right?
1: My son, my youngest son, I have, yeah. I have four kids. Okay, Um bought the company from me and my wife about five or six years ago. So I report to a 38-year-old, yes.
0: And what's that like for you? Do you see yourself in him? Do you see, you know, what's it like to, to see him do that and, and well, to be involved?
1: Totally different background. I mean, he worked in consulting. So he went through business school. Then he worked as a consultant internationally with a very small boutique firm called Monitor, which was started by five Harvard business profs. And um, so he, he had... By 30 years of age, he had experiences that you just can't buy, you know? Being in Northern Italy, uh, doing uh, sessions with sales leaders on price marketing, you know, (laughs) all over the place. And and he'd worked for us for two years uh, before he went off to do that. And so he understood our business thing. Then his wife was expecting, Hillary was expecting. They were living in London, England. And they decided oh, we'll go back to Canada. So I said, You'd be interested in this. And so he bought the company. And so he's taking it far away from. Sider and I didn't want anything big. I, I wasn't keen on managing a lot of people. Um, I, I was more interested in doing what I do, you know? So um, yeah, but Dana's uh, it, it's growing and it's, uh, it's a very different company now. But well, we're along with it, which is really good. Still yes. sit on the management team, just because you know sometimes you say things and they go, "Oh, that's that's okay." Um, we've had this, It's been really good because it's forced me uh, to keep pace to a degree with technology and things, so I'm not as out of it as uh, I might have been as a 74 year old uh, at all. So um, that that's been good. Yeah, it's been good. Living proof about that old dog. He can learn new tricks.
0: And that is Dr. Peter Jensen and what an incredible bag of tricks he's got and what a gift that he took the time to share them with us all. There are so many things I'd like to highlight from our time together, but I'll just share my favorite quote, I think, from Peter's thoughts. If you'll be nothing without a gold medal, you'll be nothing with one. So it's not really about the gold medal. It's about what you become along the way thank you, Peter, for all of it. And thank you for listening, especially if you have made it a bit of a habit to listen to Heroes in Our Midst. If you haven't subscribed yet, do. Tell your friends about us. Like us. Share your favorite one or two. And if you want to find all of the stories that we've collected over 60 episodes, head to our website, heroesinourmidst.ca. Next week, Dr. Adrian Leslie Toogood and I will be looking back at all of Season 2, reflecting on it, and, and then we'll give you a sneak peek of the Season 3 that we have planned. Needless to say, we are super excited about it all. Thanks for listening.